0: This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandprez.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Last week, I shared a testimony about uh, an experience of watching a sunset, right? And you've all seen a sunset. You've seen the sun go down, but you know it's not the sun that's actually going down, right? It's the world that is turning so that it's relative to the sun. It appears as though the sun is going down. But if you think about it, the world isn't really turning as much as it is spinning, right? The world is spinning. And as we are relative to the sun, then we get to see this beautiful experience. But a turn is something different, right? Have you ever been driving along and you made a wrong turn? You thought this was the way. If you turn right, this is the way to go. And then you realize as you get down farther down the way, it's not actually the way, it's the wrong way. And so then what do you do? If you're wise, you you turn and you go to a different way. And then you realize instead of turning to the right, I should have turned to the left or whatever it might be. And there are places in life that we get where we say, I need to make a turn. For whatever reason, I took this turn. It seemed like the right term, seemed like the right idea at the time. I was going to take this turn, but now I've gotten to this place and realize this isn't where I should be. So I've got to make a turn. Maybe it's a a U-turn. It's some kind of turn. And you go back past the turn where you were originally and you realize I should have gone this way altogether. But here I am now and I've made this wrong turn and I'm trying to get back the other way. Well, we see Jonah in the story making a turn. Right all along throughout the story in Jonah 1 and 2, Jonah has been trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he has physically changed his posture from running from God to trusting God in some way to do what God has asked him to do. So now he's finally making the turn. It's interesting because the word turn appears four times in this passage, which means then, hey, we should be paying attention. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jonah now is moving toward the role that God has given to him to share with the Assyrians what God wants them to know? The question is, Jonah has turned his body to move toward the Ninevites, the Assyrians, but has his heart turned toward them? The task is to call out against the city. Remember, we know the Ninevites, who are Assyrians, are this exceedingly wicked and violent people. They, They have no scruples whatsoever. One scholar described them, as I've said, as a terrorist state. And so it's totally understandable to us why Jonah would not want to respond in obedience to the word of God. He wouldn't want to go there because he either is afraid of them, that they would kill him or put him in jail, Or he might even fear that they may actually become his brother. There's a long story of fighting between the nation of Israel and the Assyrians. That gives us insight into Jonah's desire to flee from God. Jonah can make a good reason why God and what he's asking him to do isn't reasonable. It's not good, so I'm not going to do it. And yet while an understandable posture that Jonah has toward God because what God is asking him to do doesn't even make any sense. God's people aren't called to understand everything that God asked them to do. He just says to simply do it. You know, learning about our faith is an important aspect of being a follower of Jesus. And that's why we take a lot of time and energy to to create spaces for you, in addition to Sunday morning worship, for you to learn about your faith and to study God's word. There's great groups and classes that are available to you so that you can learn about being a follower of Jesus. But but once we learn something about Jesus, we're called to obey what Jesus commands. And sometimes the issue with learning is that there's just always something more to learn. And so we can easily get stuck in that uh, career student posture where I just, I just need to learn the next thing. I'm not really ready to do what God's asked me to do because I need to learn more about it. And once I learn more, well, then I'll do it. But Jesus calls us to obedience to his word, whether we understand what he's asking us to do or not. You see, humans, people, we we, we tend to do it like this. We say, I'm going to hear what Jesus said, and then I'm going to learn about it. And once I understand it and all the implications of it, then I'm going to obey it. Right? It goes, hear, learn, understand, and then obey. But Jesus says hear what I'm saying and obey it. Obey it immediately. And then you'll learn about what I'm talking to you about. And then as you obey what I'm telling you to do, then you'll understand it. Understanding and learning is not necessary for obedience. Jesus says to do it, we are called to do it. And it's then, as we go about doing it, as we take the action that Jesus is asking us to to take, that's when we begin to understand the implications. That's when we become not only lifelong learners of Jesus, but people who are willing to respond because he he then explains it to us as we go along the way. You see, Jonah isn't able to do this either. I I can identify with Jonah because I struggle. How could could God do something with these Ninevites? Maybe Jonah has a sense of superiority, right? He doesn't... He doesn't want, um, he doesn't think that they're good people. Maybe Jonah couldn't conceive how it'd be possible for his enemies to become his brothers. Maybe he felt like if he did what God told him to do, he'd be rejected by his family. And he probably was right. Whatever the reason Jonah has for not obeying, and people can come up with all kinds of reasons. Well, I, I don't, I'm not an expert on that. I haven't been to seminary. I don't understand. I don't know. If, some, if I share my faith and someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer to it, I'll feel embarrassed. If someone rejects me for just saying, here's my testimony of what God's doing in my life, well, I'll, I'll feel isolated and alone. Whatever the reason is for us not responding in obedience to, to God, we can provide those. And yet God says to obey. He wants to teach us in and through. Not only does Jonah have a message for, does God have a message for Jonah to the, uh, to the Ninevites, but God has a message for Jonah. Not only does he want to use you to reach and to care for and to encourage and to serve the people who are around you, but he also wants to shape and form you as you go about doing that. That you would increase your trust in God. That you can, when he calls you to obey, and then you actually obey what he says, you see, yeah, God, I can trust you. You are a God who is faithful, even when I'm not faithful. You are full of joy in life, even when I feel discouraged and defeated. And so here, Jonah finally begins to relent. He says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah doesn't know how it's going to turn out. He probably can't conceive of what's going to take place. But he says, God has told me to do this. God has hurled the storm. God has sent the fish. And now I relent. I've called out for the salvation of the Lord. And now I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. He makes it out of the fish. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath. Verse four, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He calls out. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So it's this massive city. It's really a gigantic city. Archaeologists have excavated the city and have been impressed that there was a great wall that was seven and a half miles around the entire city. Sennacherib, one of Nineveh's great kings, made it a great city and had a palace that was without rival in its day. 600 feet by 630 feet width and length. Two football fields. That's how big the palace was. It had 80 different rooms. Into the city, there were 18 different canals that brought water in, along with this magnificently constructed aqueduct. It was a marvel of its day. A great city of opulent wealth for kings but certainly great oppression for those who had to build that palace. Right? These structures would require mass amounts of labor, and it wasn't the royal family who was doing the work. It wasn't like the Amish community where he said, hey, everybody come on out. We're going to have a barn raising, and we're all going to pitch in and do the work. No, it was the people that they had conquered and enslaved who were doing the work. In order to build these massive things, you had to have a lot of people, and those people were oppressed. And so we see in the... In the social strata of this city you have the ultimate in wealth and you have the ultimate in poverty and oppression if the Assyrians were evil enough to destroy their nations they were certainly had no problem enslaving them and so Jonah goes into the city and he calls out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown you know we like to talk about winsome evangelism building a relationship with someone so that you may be able to chance to to share your faith. And Jonah just walks into the city and says, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The text doesn't tell us uh, what Jonah is thinking, but this plain speech that he provides is kind of jarring to us. It's just like, here's the message that God has for you people. Not hey guys, let me build it. Let me just let me just share with you. I want to talk about something really important. I'm Jonah. I'm an Israelite. I know we have a background problem, but let me just share something really important because I care about you. It's jarring. Now he may be have said other things, but we know what he said. It's not the most warm approach. And yet, what does the text tell us in verse five? And the people of Nineveh believed God. And the people of Nineveh believed God. right? So Jonah, this journey from from his hometown to Tarshish to get away from the presence of the Lord, to disobey the command because somehow he couldn't believe that God would ever do anything. Now here it says, he says this bold, stark statement, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Somehow these evil assassins far from God preached to by someone that they hated, whom, whom he hated, they believed God. To his great surprise, they turn from sin and believe God. Instead of throwing him in prison, instead of casting him out, instead of you know, giving him the, the big eyebrow, like who are you to tell us this? Or I don't want to hear about that. They believe God. Has there ever been a moment where you felt like the Lord was putting it in your spirit to, to just to give a testimony, just to share with someone about what God was doing in your life? And there's that fear that you fear you have. What will, they, what will they think of me if I just say this? <sighs> you know, there have been times when I've stepped into that moment and said something, and it went terrible. <laughs> and there have been other times where I thought, maybe I should have said something, and I just didn't do it. But we know that feeling. Like, how do I talk about this faith of mine in a way to just to bear witness to the goodness of God? We just don't know what God is going to do because the person who seems like they may be the most far away from God could potentially be the person who is going through something difficult that is most ready and most open to hearing about about the God who is. I mean, listen to what they do. And it's not just like, hey, we believe in God. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them... To the least of them, that means the king in the palace and all of the people of the city. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe and covered himself in sackcloth and in ashes. He sat and he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? The proclamation says God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They were so moved the king and everyone, that they put on this symbol of mourning and ashes. And they said, okay, look, we need to do, it. hey, how about a proclamation? Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do a proclamation. Okay, get the guy, the script writers, and get the paper out. And who's going to, who's gonna, say, what, how should it say? What should it say? Should it say this? How should it be? They had to think through and plan out and write out that statement. Okay, is this forceful enough? Is this the right language? Is this the right word? How do we do this? Who's going to proclaim it? Get this message out to everybody in the whole city. Because everybody in the whole city has to know this. And remember, it's an exceedingly great city. So we got a lot of people. i got a lot of work to do, guys, to get this proclamation out. This is a big deal. The king is saying, I want everybody to know about this proclamation. And man, if the king says, get the proclamation out, what do you do? You get the proclamation out. What do we make of this? What do we make of this? What is it that leads to repentance? As I mentioned four times in verses 8 through 10, the word turn appears. It means a number of different things in the Bible, but it means here to repent, to turn away from something. In this unbelievable twist, a violent, powerful city collectively puts on a symbol of repentance, the sackcloth, and we're told that from the greatest to the least, which means from the top to the bottom of the social spectrum, there is repentance. How is this even possible? Now, some have speculated that around the time of Jonah's mission, Assyria was facing several challenges. There were plagues and famines and revolts, even eclipses, which were seen as omens, as something coming that was even far worse. Some argue this was the way that God was preparing the ground for Jonah. David Timmer says, This state of affairs would have made both rulers and subjects unusually attuned to the message of a visiting prophet. Now there's always sociological factors at work, right? As I mentioned, the person that you think is the least likely to hear the word, if they're going through something difficult, if they're having a terrible time, that word that you provide may be just the thing that's for them because of the struggle that they're facing. Social factors in their life make them open. People who are in jail are much more open to hearing about God than people who are just doing everything great. Right, when you know when someone who is sad or experiencing difficulty, you have an opportunity to come alongside them and to minister and to care and to love them. And maybe, if the time is right, to share something hopeful about the gospel. See, there's all these things going on in the culture. However... These kinds of things happen all the time. There's always plagues. There's always famines. There are often eclipses. Why did this happen? Because this is something different. Tim Keller, he writes about this in the book, uh, Rediscovering Jonah. He says, in January of 1907, a revival broke out in Pyongyang, which is now the capital of North Korea. Think about this, okay? Hear me now. A revival in Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea, just over a hundred years ago. Just get that and let that kind of sink in, right? That a work of God happened in Pyongyang. But in 1907, those who were attending the conference came under a deep conviction of sin because there was a preacher that came out and he called them to repent of their hatred of the Japanese. Of course, Korean Christians had accepted the fundamental truths of the gospel of grace but these truths had not sunk in deeply enough for them to forgive their bitter enemy, the Japanese. They felt morally superior to a nation they saw as oppressive and cruel. But in light of the gospel, the Koreans at the conference saw that they stood before God as equally sinful and equally condemned with all other human beings. And yet they were rescued by the sheer and costly grace of Jesus Christ. And this just then drained away their pride It drained away their bitterness, and so they returned to their homes with a new willingness to to repent of wrongdoing. People went from house to house, repairing relationships and returning stolen articles. Worship services were filled with new power. The result was an explosive growth in the church. The Methodist church, for example, doubled in membership size in a single year. It's amazing. There have been many movements across the world. In the history of the church, how do we explain something like this? Many have pointed out that the Japanese Christian Pacts of 1904 and 1907 imposed Japanese rule on the country. Did this background open up Korean Christians to a message that offered the resources for addressing the hatred that they had down deep for people that they saw as less than them? Did they give them the resources for repenting and offering forgiveness You see, repentance is a work of God. Repentance is a work of God. When we see our own need for a turning away from the broken things of this world, then we are able to love people who are very different from us, who people we have even hated in our lives. But what's fascinating to see is what's not said about the Ninevites. Notice it says that they believed God And yes, that's a good thing. They believe in God, but we know that the Bible says in James that even the demons believe in God. They turn from things. That's good. We value that. But unlike the sailors, they don't use the word for Lord. Right? The, the, the Ninevites believed God. The sailors confessed the Lord. The sailors made sacrifices. They made vows to the Lord, suggesting that they became in covenant relationship with God. The Ninevites merely believe in God, which is a good thing. They're turning from something. But they're not fully embracing the Lord of the covenant. And maybe for the Syrians, it was a, a sense that because of their power... Um, They were worshiping something other than the God who is. They were worshiping an idol. And this is something that we struggle with all the time. Our hearts are idol factories. We we can create things that we value and treasure that aren't God. And maybe for the Assyrians, it was the sense of power that they had because they were a fortified city and they had an amazing army. Maybe their idol was the sense of safety that they had because they were protected from their enemies with this big wall around their cities. Possibly. But you see, the commitment that they had to using violence to accomplish the purposes of keeping themselves safe ultimately destroyed them. The violence that they used to protect themselves couldn't create a just society where the lowest levels of the people were not freed and experienced justice. They still had a society where the the most in power were able to abuse the least in power. And that eventually undid them. This promise of safety was a lie. Maybe for Jonah, it was his sense of superiority that he had over the Assyrians. Yes, they're wicked people. But Jonah, in his heart, could never see them as brother or sister. Jonah was looking at them and saying, at least I'm not as bad as they are. Yes, I've run from God. Yes, I've made my mistakes, but I'm not like them. He was unwilling to acknowledge his own pride and his own arrogance, but God revealed this to him and he called him to love the Assyrians. In this picture of repentance, we see there's a there's a hindrance. It's one thing to say, I believe in God. It's another thing to say, I'm trusting in the Lord of the covenant, Yahweh. He is my only God. I will have no other gods before you. I will not trust in my own safety. I will not trust in my own power or my own military or my own righteousness or my own race or my own family. I will see everybody as a person who's made in the image of God. Even the people with whom I vehemently disagree about matters of policy, about matters of how we ought to run our city, about what should happen in our country. I should see those people as image bearers are in need of grace, in need of redemption, just as much as I am. And when I see myself before God as unholy, then I embrace and appreciate and value and treasure the gospel of grace that allows me to enter into covenant relationship with God. And I see that every single person who's in this world, even the ones who are the farthest from God, are people that I'm called to love and to show the mercy of God, to proclaim to them this is the good news of the gospel. And in reality, when I think about people with whom I disagree, I might even need to repent. I might even need to repent of my own prideful, arrogant attitudes toward them. I might repent of my own willingness to move across the aisle or across the city or across the world to love them in the name of Jesus and allow God to pour out his grace upon me and that repentance because as I turn to God, he receives me and he welcomes me and he loves me and then he sets me free. Are you trusting in anything other than God, anything other than Yahweh for your power? Have you believed what you've been told about other people, about who they are and what they're like? Do you need to repent of an attitude of lack of mercy for those who are in our community or in our world who are different. As we experience this meal and this sacrifice and celebrate this supper, we realize that we all come to this table in desperate need of grace, which moves us to repentance, to live in that grace and to rejoice. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us and that you've loved us infinitely and- joyfully we pray that we would hear about your your grace and it would move us to repentance for your sake in jesus name amen indeed this is a meal that we celebrate what is is but a foretaste of the heavenly meal that we'll experience in glory and we know that in the bible there are all these different accounts of of meals that take place Uh, and there's a there's this big feast that happens in the in the gospel of luke remember the story of the two sons One of the sons had run far from God, but repented. He turned back to God, and the father said, Let us have a great feast. And he was welcomed in, and he sat at the table. And yet the elder brother was angry. How could you kill the fattened calf for my brother after all that he's done? And in the story, we don't know if the elder brother, who was proud, if he ever came in to participate in that meal. It just reminds us of two pictures. And on the one hand, we have the person who says, Lord, I don't want, I'm gonna reject your word. I don't want anything to do with you. But then sees the misery of a life without God, turns and repents and embraces and, and accepts that invitation. Are you one of those that needs to turn and come back to God? Or are you one of these that looks at that person and says, man, how could that person who's done all those bad things have a seat at the table where I sit? That same attitude needs to be repented of because God in his grace welcomes both of those brothers as each of those brothers and sisters repent of their sin and say, Lord, I know I don't deserve anything, but I'm coming to this table freely, joyfully, because you have made it possible for me to partake and to participate. And through repentance and trust in the gospel, we are able to enjoy this fellowship and to enjoy this meal as a family. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, Maturing God's People to Serve a Hurting World. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.